0: When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country? The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com.
1: Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last.
2: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.
0: Welcome to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and it is time for another edition of Ask Sam. Why do geese make feats? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? It? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? But I don't know Ask Sam. So this is our regular segment where we answer questions from listeners, usually about animals and animal butts. (laughs) Uh, It's usually just random nature facts. But today I am here with producer Felix Poon. Hello, hello. And Annie yay, uh, NHPR's energy and climate reporter, because this is the Ask Sam Climate Edition to celebrate the fact that Annie has launched a new climate reporting project called By Degrees. Okay, here's the first question.
1: Hi, Sam and Outside In crew. I was listening to your episode on the Carrington event, and you said something really fast that brought up a lot of questions in my mind. Which is mega droughts.
0: It's just like there's so many things in this category, but like, like the massive earthquake that we're due for in the Pacific Northwest, like mega one. droughts in the Midwest, like pandemics. Right?
1: And I was wondering if the United States is doing anything to prepare for a mega drought, if we are prepared for a mega drought. Um, I live in California, so it's particularly prescient for me. Thank you. Ooh.
3: See, (laughs) uplifting.
0: Did anybody read Dune, the sci-fi books?
1: Oh my god, I've never
3: no. read them. All I know about them is that the spice must flow. <laughs> the spice must. The
4: spice must flow. What does that mean? I don't know. Spice is
0: spice like a, a like drug slash performance enhancer that was mined on the planet in the books, which was a, a, like a sand planet. And, and there was this whole thing about how the the like native people of the planet were very, very good at conserving water, and they wore these suits that just like recycled all their bodily water.
5: Respiration passes through the first layer and is gathered in the second where salt is separated. Urine and feces are processed in the thigh pads.
0: Yeah, well I mean suffice to say I don't think anyone is designing any of those dune suits. Should should we?
3: That sounds like it could be a, a win win.
0: Did you all hear of the the Mega Drought thing when the Mega Drought thing happened? No. Okay, the the whole mega drought idea last got a lot of attention during the peak of that extended drought in California which like sort of ended in 2019 but then started back up again this year so this was it was, was maybe like the 2014 to 2016 time frame was when it was driest out there but basically mega droughts were things that happened in ancient times they were droughts that lasted for more than a decade and and maybe as much as a century I don't know that anyone's doing anything to Hair in particular, like what I know is that when you look at the Colorado River, which supplies the water for like a ton of cities and states out west, the politics of it are crazy and, and essentially when they set out the allotments for like each state gets this much um, they did so in the middle of a, like his, like a historically wet period and so they're always fighting over these allotments because there's never enough water like they've, they've like assumed that there's too much water in the river because of the baseline that they set.
4: So wait what, what are they allotting? What are you talking about? The
0: actual flow of the Colorado River like how much of the Colorado River can you use California and you Arizona and you New Mexico. So so they get their supply from the Colorado River?
4: Yeah. yeah.
3: The craziest thing to me about Colorado River water fights is that you can actually see where the river ends. It doesn't reach the sea anymore. Yeah. It's, it's just, just
0: drying up before it gets to the, the ocean. Right because all the states are taking they're taking so mm. much of it that there's literally nothing yeah. left.
3: And, and a lot of that is going for agriculture we should note.
0: Yes. Like most yeah. of it I think. What's that? Like almonds, right? Almonds take up a lot of water. That's yeah. what I hear. Well, apparently alfalfa is the big one, and there's this valley where there's this like tons of alfalfa grown, and alfalfa is like an incredibly water-intensive crop. But the reason this one region gets to grow all this alfalfa and like use all this water sort of profligately is just because like because of the crazy politics of colorado river water which is that like that valley was allotted this x amount of water like back in the 50s or something and therefore they get to just like keep using it i have a question
4: we've been talking about supply of water what about demands because as i understand it like across u.s suburbs right everyone wants the nice grassy green lawn Ooh. but that's not really <laughs> kill
3: your lawn to save the planet
4: yeah that's not <laughs> quite natural to the the west coast right climate right so have there been efforts i'm wondering like to kind of move away from the grassy green lawn on the west coast or yeah like these desert
3: areas Western you know? felix my
0: understanding is that there have been efforts to do what's called xeriscaping escaping which right. is where you pull up your grass and you plant uh, native non-water requiring plants. But the problem is that if you've ever lived in a dry place, and, and for me, my experience came in living in southern Spain, is that in dry places, all the native plants are like very you know, it's hard to live there. And so they, they have to, like, defend themselves against uh, being eaten by herbivores. And so, like, everything right. so is they like, spiky cactuses. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: But I, I do think that the problem is more always going to be with the large extractors. Like, people can mm-hmm. do as much as they can to conserve water, to, like, not water their lawns, not have lawns. Um, but it's these big users. It's the factories and the agricultural, you know, the irrigation systems and stuff that are always going to be the bigger drain on the system. And so I think the politics question yeah. is really important because those are also more powerful interests, right? So a good point. what effect does yeah. that have on it?
0: Okay, so, so if we were to reach out to someone to answer this question, if we decided that our pontificating wasn't good enough for the podcast <laughs> audience. <laughs> what? Not good <laughs> enough. So a satisfactory answer would be something along the lines, what would being prepared for a mega drought look like?
3: Yeah, like what is yeah. it? And does technology exist to help us prepare... And what are the trade-offs of that technology? Should you be
5: in the open desert, remember to breathe in through your mouth and out through this nose tube.
0: I think I maybe overdid it a little bit when it came to finding the answers to this question. I spoke to all of these people.
6: Hi, I'm Casey Bowles, and I am a climate scientist at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory.
5: Okay, yeah, I'm uh, John Nielsen Gammon. I am the Texas State Climatologist. Uh,
6: my name is Marisa Flores Gonzalez, the Water Resources Program Manager working in the Systems Planning Division at Austin. Water. And I'm Teresa Lutz, and
0: I'm a managing engineer with Austin Water. So, sorry about that. That should do it.
4: That's a lot of uh, mega drought experts.
0: <laughs> there is no drought when it comes to mega drought experts. <laughs> uh, so, so, what I learned from all of these many, many interviews is that what we know about mega droughts comes from tree ring data. This is like actually the fairly recent ancient past. So it's like the last 1200, you know, cu- you know, last millennia essentially, which is like a kind of brief time scale. And even in that kind of brief timescale, there have been four major mega droughts in the American West, Great Plains and Texas. And, and I think we should just think about this here, that the definition of a mega drought is, is a dry period that lasts at least a decade.
5: Hmm. It's not that you have 10 consecutive dry years, but you have this prolonged period where um, the average conditions over a 10-year period are below some sort of drought threshold. There were several mega droughts in the past millennium, including one big one in the, in the 1600s, and others that um, may have been associated with the transition from the Anasazi civilization in the south- southwestern United States, that sort of thing. Uh,
0: there's also been some hypothesizing that, that uh, a mega drought might have helped spur the collapse of the Mayan civilization. Um, but, but it's like it's a much more common phenomenon, I think, than I really was thinking heading into this. So, anxious yet?
3: Well, I feel like we're in one right now in New Hampshire. We've had droughts like every other year for the past probably close to a decade, right?
0: Well, indeed, at least in the West, the science says that, yeah, like we have been in a mega drought almost probably for the past 20 years. Um, yeah. And and not only that, but <laughs> that is a megadrought that's coming off of what the tree ring data says is the wettest period in the whole past thousand mm. years.
6: And so we based a lot of our water use and water allocation on this assumption of the 1800s that we'll always have a lot more water than we actually do.
0: If you remember from what we were saying before, the allotments of Colorado River water that each state received were were set, like the baseline for them was set during a very wet decade. That was the 1920s. And it turns out that the 1920s were a wet decade within like an abnormally wet century.
6: And so these mega droughts that we see in the tree ring record are often used as the worst case scenario for water managers. But what we're seeing now is that we're on the same trajectory. So we're seeing the same intensity and speed of and duration of dry down. So this loss of soil moisture in particular, that we observed during the mega droughts of the last 2000 years.
4: So does this mean this is kind of like a like a natural phenomenon we're experiencing now that it just it's just a natural part of the ebb and flow of of water
0: well it is definitely the case that that these prolonged dry periods are something that that can happen naturally climate scientists say that they think about 50 percent of the dryness so like it's it's a, it's twice as bad right now as it would have been if it weren't for uh anthropogenic climate hmm. change so no, <laughs> gotcha. so yes yeah. and no. Yeah. yeah. Huh. But then, okay. So if those, if those interviews are, are scary, I, the, the, the interview that I did, so I actually spoke with uh, Marisa and Teresa together there cause they both work at Austin water. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, they are actual water planners and, and their job is to like get, water to a million people in Austin, Texas, like one of the biggest cities in the U.S. And, and it was actually a fairly reassuring conversation because they just got off an eight-year-long drought that was, you know, the worst on record. In 2011, which was the worst year
6: during that uh, drought of record, new drought of record that we have, the amount of water flowing into our storage reservoirs was 127,000 acre-feet. And in the worst year of the drought of record previously
0: to that, from the 1950s, it was, as I recall, it was about 500,000. So the most recent new drought of record, we got a quarter of
3: the amount of water flowing into the system in the worst year. How do you keep the water flowing when that's happening?
0: (laughs) My takeaway is like they're on top of it. Like they've got these efficiency programs where they're swapping out people's fixtures. They have wastewater recycling, which is, you know, cleaning up sewage to the point where it's clean enough that it's distributed for non-drinking purposes and what's called a purple pipe system. Um that they're they're colored purple so that people know like this water should not be uh ingested. <laughs> and and they're now investigating something that's called like an aquifer recharge system where they'd have these injection wells that would let them Pump water back underground during wet periods because because this idea of a mega drought it's it's a multiple multiple decades but you can still have a a wet year and still have it qualify as a mega drought like you know that's what happened last year out in California was they were having many many dry years and then they had one wet year and so the idea is like you can cap, you could capitalize on that wet year to sort of recharge your
6: storage imagine it's kind of like decision trees you know. Um, decision trees kind of tell you like if you reach this point go if you reach this point don't go Um, and, and tell you kind of which pathways you should be following down as you kind of see how conditions are changing over time
0: so my takeaway was sort of like the listener's question is like is anyone planning for these mega droughts and the answer was like yeah <laughs> like, like very very purposefully they have they're thinking about all this it's just that the, the changes required are slow like they're big investments
3: it's super interesting because my next question was going to be how much of you know our ability to respond to this depends on like human behavior so like people's ability to conserve water to not water their lawns not wash their cars like when they're told not to do so but it sounds like they have you know you talked about replacing fixtures and stuff so they have ways of getting around even that
4: yeah so that I almost wonder if that just gives, if I were someone living there and I have a big, pretty green lawn, does that just give me license to be like, you know, I'm just going to not conserve water because we're not at that point yet? Great question. Like, do I have that license yeah. to do that? <laughs> like, I don't want that to be the takeaway, but I almost kind no. of feel like it is a yeah. possible takeaway.
0: I guess the question is sort of like, to what extent is a mega drought a crisis as opposed to a challenge, right? Mm-hmm.
3: There's a, There's a glass half full joke here somewhere. <laughs> no, <laughs> anywhere. Dealer. Uh, <Anymore? laughs> uh, <laughs> Hopefully
4: that glass doesn't get too
0: empty.
3: But there you go. Thanks,
0: Felix.
5: <laughs>
3: so,
0: shall we head on to the next question? Sure. Let's do it.
5: Good morning, Sam and friends in Outside In. My name is Ben. I'm calling from Clarksville, Maryland. With a question about renewable energy certificates, sometimes (laughs) known by their acronym RECS, my question is, are these intangibles helping actuate the pivot to a decarbonized energy world, or are they a hindrance?
0: I actuate the pivot every day.
5: Please weigh in. Thank you, Sam and friends. Bye-bye. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Did you plant that question, Sam?
5: <laughs> uh,
3: I can. Do you want me to try to translate that?
4: Yeah, I think my first question is: What exactly is a renewable energy certificate? Any
0: go?
3: Oh, okay. Well, oh, god. Now I don't know. <laughs> so, a renewable energy certificate is something that, uh, like, a company can get in exchange for. Producing renewable energy, right, Sam, are saying that they'll emit less carbon, and they have value, okay. and they can trade them, and it's like a little stock market, and they can be used in place of actually producing renewable energy, and so, like, a company could buy a bunch of recs to sort of, like, say that it is offsetting all of its carbon emissions because it's investing in someone else's lack of carbon emissions right but they could still be emitting themselves does that make sense so yeah
0: I would I would nuance that a little yes. bit in that <laughs> so so re- renewable energy credits uh, were created by a suite of laws that were passed in more than half of the states in the country and they are renewable energy standards and what they do is they say that dear electric utilities in this state, by x date you have to produce x percent of your electricity from renewable sources and in new hampshire it's 25 percent by 2025 that was like the easy way to remember it but the renewable energy credits were imagined as this sort of like market-based system for determining what is like the cheapest way to meet that mandate and so everybody who who generates renewable electricity also generates renewable energy credits and they sell them to the utilities so that the utilities can meet their mandate and right. so like we have solar panels on our roof and and so for every megawatt hour that the panels make i get one wreck and i get to sell it and it and it goes for like uh in here in new hampshire they're like you know the low point was like five dollars per, and and maybe as much as like forty dollars per when I first started, but they float with the market. It's like Annie was saying, sold my right. Rex.
4: Yeah, so I guess if 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 I like painted a kind of scenario of I own a business, and let's let's say I own a golf course, if I want to say like oh I run on renewable energy, I can either buy enough Rex to be able to legally say that. Right. Or I'd have to kind of install my own solar panels right. or whatever, wind turbines. And then I could say, based on that, I run off of renewable energies. Yes, that's right. But then if I generate more than that, I can then sell them as wrecks as for others to use.
3: I'll be really interested to hear if you can talk to someone about this, like how we even measure whether it's a help or a hindrance. Because I mean, I think like overall, you can say that Uh, carbon trading systems like have helped. I mean, they've created economic activity up here. There's like studies to show that in the Northeast. But how do you tell when it like outlives its usefulness, I guess, and, and when a different kind of policy or something like that would be more helpful? Like, I don't even really know how you measure impact around these things.
4: I remember getting like some kind of PR email from Lyft that said that they Hmm. were carbon neutral. (gasps) Exactly. And I was like, how is that even possible? Like your whole business is based on cars driving people around. So like, how is it even possible to claim that you're carbon neutral? Well, and
0: here's the funny thing about Lyft, right? So they just made this big announcement where they said they're going to require all of their drivers to drive electric cars by Mm. X date. And when they did that, they dropped the whole buying carbon offsets scheme and so they stopped mm. doing the offsets yeah, because interesting. they were like they knew better. that nobody was buying it yeah exactly so i spoke to a gentleman named jigger shaw who is a sort of serial entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, most recently, he's the co-founder of this thing called Generate Capital, which invests in low-carbon infrastructure projects. And he's also one of the co-hosts of a podcast called The Energy Gang. I, I actually came away from the conversation feeling like we did a pretty good job and and that he basically <laughs> thinks that the root of this question, like the reason this gentleman is reaching out to us with skepticism is that there's there's like a conflation of two ways in which RECs are used. And one is that they're used as like an accounting mechanism to assure ensure that electric utilities are complying with these mandates that have been handed down by law. But then on the other hand, you've also got these folks.
4: Yeah. Remember, there are people who um, will reach out to you uh, via email and say, if you feel terrible about your carbon footprint, I've got some RECs to sell you. And I'll charge you the low low price of 39.95 a month and you will have all that guilt wiped away.
0: <laughs> Bingo. And so so he says this first category the mandates like these clean or renewable energy standards that are backed up by the RECs as the accounting mechanism have been like very instrumental in helping the renewable energy industry achieve achieve the scale that that it has here in the United States. Uh, and then that second category, which especially early on, was mostly used as a, as a strategy for businesses to claim things like, oh, we're 100% powered by renewable energy. Those are a little bit less robust.
4: Um, it was generally used as a way to promote existing renewables, right? So, I mean, some of the biggest sources um, of wrecks were um, old biomass sawmills uh, facilities, right, where people were going to burn the sawdust anyway because it was a pain to do anything else with it.
0: And so, so like this term REC suffers from being uh, something that has been used for two very different purposes.
3: It, it runs into the problems that we talked about if it is used in the guilt wiping way, but it also is a necessary accounting tool. So
4: does this mean I should not be impressed with Lyft's uh, zero carbon footprint?
0: Oh, 100% not. Yeah. Not at all. Lift. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. Wait Lyft. until
3: you're in a you know an EV ride, Sharon, and then, then we'll talk, you know.
0: We'll be back with more Ask Sam, Climate Edition.
1: Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last.
2: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.
5: today in just a bit
0: welcome back to outside in today ask sam climate edition ready for our next question everybody yeah here we go this is rachel in denver colorado asking sam a question about climate change there's a lot of conflicting information regarding trees and climate
6: change i myself
0: live in denver colorado and i have planted a few trees here and there But I do know that trees can pose fire dangers. And so I'm wondering, although they eat a lot of carbon, is it really a good idea for people in urban areas and maybe even people who don't live in Denver, Colorado, like I do, in more rural areas to rely on planting trees to help combat climate change? Mm,
4: This one's a very interesting one. That's such true. an
3: interesting question of trade-offs because we do think of trees as sort of this one-to-one carbon benefit. Like, you plant a tree, it soaks up more carbon, like, check, you know? But right. in the West, like, that actually could be more of a hindrance than a help.
4: Seems like kind of like a East Coast, West Coast thing
0: because I, I just can't even imagine trees catching fire here. <laughs> yeah. You know? There is an interesting phenomenon here, though, where um, in... Ecosystems where fire is common and where they're adapted to fire, the trees don't actually burn. If the fire comes through frequently enough, um it burns at a pretty low heat and so it just like sweeps out the underbrush and doesn't yeah and doesn't light up the trees the trees don't torch as they as the fire people say it so so
4: what's been going on in california these past few years then well
0: so so like the the whole story out west is that there was this whole there was like decades and decades of fire suppression where like the smoky bear uh message came uh-huh. in and it was like hey prevent forest fires and so f- fires weren't allowed to burn And that led to a ton of buildup of fuel in these ecosystems that were supposed to be burning periodically. And now the fires are like out of control because, A, climate change is making that fuel much more combustible. And and B, there's a lot more of it in the woods. Yeah.
3: This makes me think about the idea of a carbon sink generally. It actually makes me think about lawns again. Like, I think, you know, the symbolism of like planting a tree to soak up carbon is... Like like what the listener is saying, like that's great, but you know that's not always going to be the ideal solution. And there are other ways to create carbon sinks. You can have a natural lawn, or like I th- I'm thinking about in the Midwest and in you know farmland, you know, if just planting more um, prairie land and like wetlands and things like that in between your farm fields. That can help soak up carbon. Wetlands soak up carbon in general. So maybe there are other Things we can think about, like "quote unquote" planting, that are not going to exacerbate that fire risk quite as much. But then that mm. gets back to the water, that the water that, scarcity exactly. question, right? So I don't know. <laughs> oh, the West. That's crazy. No, I
4: don't know. This this one has me stumped. I, I don't I don't know.
3: The other thing I would just say about this one is, um, I saw a great exhibit at the National Building Museum a few years ago uh, <laughs> about uh, like climate resilient design in cities, and part of it was about. Um, like building homes and landscaping homes that are more resistant to fire so like how to build sort of stands of trees and plants around your property and like build in little hills and like fire stops and things like that in front of your house so that your house doesn't get destroyed when a fire comes through. Mm. And I wonder mm. if that could come in here too, like the kinds of trees you plant and the way you plant them.
0: Right. You need you need to plant a tree and and build a berm.
3: <laughs> yeah, basically yeah I mean if that a swale. Be...
0: <laughs> what the heck is a berm and what the heck is a swale?
3: I think they're the, the same thing. I have no idea what you're talking
0: about. <laughs> <laughs> um so I think the fundamental question here is, is it getting so dry out West that planting a tree is is not only not a good way to sequester carbon because it's just gonna die later, but also not safe <laughs> because planting a tree is like planting a torch that is just gonna light your house up. Um, so for this one, I spoke to Yoshi Maizumi, who studies fire ecology, especially in the tropics. Um, But she is currently at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, interestingly. Um, And she would like to just disabuse anyone who is afraid that trees can no longer survive in California. She would just like to disabuse them of that idea. Yeah,
6: indeed. So I think deforestation is not the answer to stopping the wildfire crisis um, and that yes pl- having having trees and managed forests are definitely going to sequester the carbon
0: um, and actually one of my mega drought interviews, the one with, with John Nielsen Gammon, the Texas state climatologist, gave me a little bit of insight into, into why it is that trees generally are a little more resilient to drier conditions than I think some people assume.
5: When you've got more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, plants don't have to open their the pores on their leaves the stomata they don't have to open it as wide to take in the carbon dioxide so they don't lose as much water vapor with those stomata being open so they become more water efficient Mm. um with increased carbon dioxide i love that so it's not the the circumstances for the plant community is not as grim as the soil moisture projections imply but it's still Still problematic.
0: I thought
4: that was a fun That's fact. That's so interesting. It's <laughs> a fun fact. <laughs> Global warming is making trees more efficient.
3: Wow. <laughs> I mean, the other thing I'm thinking about here is that there is a difference right between real wildfire fuel, the sort of underbrush and the dead stuff and the dry things that, you know, we hear about causing wildfires and a healthy, wet tree, right?
0: Right. And and so, so like maybe you would consider a drought resistant species. Um, but also you know it's easy enough if you're thinking as a homeowner as a property owner it's easy enough to pick a place where you've planted a tree that is not going to put your house in danger
6: so when we're planting trees we're already managing the fuel right so let's let's assume that the issue here is danger is because of we having too much fuel near our houses but what, what happens usually when we're when we're having concerns about these uh, wildfires and too much trees being planted near homes is when those trees aren't managed and it gets really overgrown and really shrubby um, and that can be more of a hazard but in like a a backyard situation we can pick where we plant the trees so you'll you know if you know you're going to have a large you know 20 foot tall tree you're not going to plant them right on top of each other so you might plan one 20 feet on the left side of your yard and then 20 feet on the other side of your yard.
0: The smaller the stuff, the more it burns. So it's like clean up your yard, yo, like like pick up the dead branches when they fall down. Seems like a lot of work. Yeah.
3: And it it brings (laughs) to mind kind of like a housing equity question for me, too. I mean, we see these overhead photos of places in California like Paradise that were completely decimated and they're really dense. They're like these suburban neighborhoods where people don't have big yards and the trees are all close to the houses if people have them. And. I think, you know, having a nice big yard where you can plant your trees really far from your home is great if you're in the hills, which plenty of people who are at risk are. But um, I think this raises some interesting questions for the denser areas, too.
0: Let's listen to the last question.
3: Hey,
4: Sam. uh, My name is Blaine, and I'm calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, I'm a Avid cross-country skier, and something that's been bugging me lately, is the environmental impact of man-made snow. Mm. Uh, You know, us skiers generally consider ourselves to be environmentally responsible, but we don't ever really talk about the impact of the man-made snow we're skiing on. Because we
0: lie to ourselves. Like,
4: what does this do to the water quality? How much electricity are we using? Where is electricity coming from? By making more and more fake snow, are we part of the solution or part of the problem? Thanks, Sam. Sounds like a great question. I feel attacked. (laughs) Oh.
3: (laughs) So I know that uh, it's the larger ski resorts that are able to make their own snow. They use a lot of energy and water to do it, but they're able to invest in energy efficiency in a way that, you know, they can do it without it jacking up their bills, whereas the little guys are the ones that aren't going to be able to do this. And so... Uh, one effect of this question is that it'll it'll create consolidation in the ski industry. So your favorite little backyard ski resort that you love to go to, or not even resort, you know, your little ski patch that is maintained by a family and has been a there forever, patch. and it's time I made that up. I'm sorry, I don't know a ski. <laughs> I love it. I
4: love it. What is it? Some, What do you call it? I've got it? a lot of favorite ski patches. <laughs> the yeah. mom and pop, mom and pop mountain. Yeah, yeah mom and pop Exactly. The mom shop. and pop
3: mountain is is not doing so good on making its own snow, whereas the big resorts are doing it it definitely is resource intensive but they have the money to make it efficient and the other thing i know is that they are absolutely going to have to do more of this as the climate gets warmer especially in like southern new hampshire or places like that that are right on the kind of edge of being Mm. more reliably colder for longer
4: yeah i you know what's interesting i i almost wonder like what What role this plays in our kind of mental denialism? Not not I, I'm not a skier, but if I were, I feel like you would
0: happily ignore this thing.
4: Climate change is changing my my ability to 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 be able to ski, but actually not really because we can just use yeah. like technology and and, you know, no big
0: deal. I can just keep skiing on snow,
3: yeah, the optics of it. so
0: okay. so, there, there's like a whole wing of the environmental movement that is sort of like the solution to climate change is to like return to low energy living. Uh, and and like adopt a low energy lifestyle, and and so like the the things that flow from that are like we should all be eating 100% local food. Like you shouldn't travel. You should be like living close to you know a city center. close To the land. Yeah, exactly. And it's this sort of like return to pastoralism vision. Cottage
3: core is what the kids call it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then but then there's like this the, what they call themselves like the eco modernists who are like no the solution is technology and adaptation. Right Um and and so like what I hear here is like the push pull between these two schools of thought and oh, wow. and like because because as Annie was saying like snowmaking is is like textbook climate adaptation it's like right. we had this stable climate that enabled the ski industry it's evaporating and so what do we do like we we like brute force our way through um, but still like it does use a lot of energy and the energy yeah. is 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 electricity and so like you can actually imagine a world in which that electricity is being supplied renewable the right. water is being regulated in in like uh, you know a responsible way, and so so like so zero c- carbon footprint.
3: Yay! <laughs> that would all be really nice.
0: But that is not a low energy society. That's still like high energy society, and and so mm-hmm. that's like the push pull I hear between these two camps, and and like. You know, it's the same thing with like r- renewable energy. Like there there are people within the environmental movement who are disgusted by like large scale renewable energy projects because of the land use.
3: And the resource extraction to make them. I mean, that's something we right. don't talk about is like the solar panel mining for the components and that kind of thing and waste and disposal. Hmm. I also think like Felix's, Felix's question about like if this sort of helps people put blinders on, I think is so interesting because right now when we're making snow we are doing it with, like, a fossil fuel-supported grid, right? I mean, unless these, maybe the ski resorts are buying wrecks. In fact, they probably are, and that's how they're saying that it's okay, you know? And so they're, like, it's, there's a, you know, th- all adaptation has to come with mitigation, right? This is the same thing as how we're going to need to use more air conditioning in the summer because it's getting hotter, and right now right. all that A.C. is run on natural gas.
0: But that at least is worth it because it, like, can save people's lives, right? True, like, waves true, kill people. unlike people Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: I, I grew up in Massachusetts right and I always feel like I, I I have actually skied I used to ski when I was when I was a teenager and growing up in Massachusetts it's always like well obviously you go to Vermont, you go to New Hampshire to go skiing but if if climate change and global warming gets to the point where like uh, that area doesn't naturally support skiing, it could be a wake-up call mm. but the fact that like you know we're pumping out all this snow it's like oh no it's just like when I was a kid nothing's changed yeah. you know and i can just conveniently ski right by that snowmaking machine and not think
0: anything of it. <laughs> the thing that i would i would like ultimately postulate is that like when you look at the energy consumption of the snowmaking industry as a whole, it's like a tiny 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 drop in the bucket, right? And so it's like like the whole society has to get off of carbon dioxide. Like the whole society has to transition away from fossil fuels and and so like if we do that, then then like snowmaking will have less impact and the impact it will have will be on water and like we can quantify that and figure out what we what's acceptable and what's not so it's like i mean, I, I i don't know like i feel like we can look it up but i just don't know that it's going to provide any more insight into the fundamental tension mm. Mm. yeah cool cool yeah, you don't need to call up any experts. We,
4: we got everything.
3: <laughs> this is so... I love this. It's just like a story brainstorming session, but then you make a podcast of it. weird.
0: <laughs> Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown. My guests in studio were producer Felix Poon and NHPR's Annie Ropeek. If you're a New England listener or just a climate nerd generally, you should definitely check out the new by Degrees project at nhpr.org slash climate. Our staff also includes Justine Paradise. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray is the director of Spice Acquisition and Quality Assurance. If you've got Ask Sam questions, please call us on our hotline, 1-844-GO-OTTER. Taylor Quimby wrote the Ask Sam theme song. The Outside In theme song is by Brickmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
5: Listen to me. The spice must flow. The spice has given me accelerated evolution for 4,000 years. It has enabled you to live 200. It gives the Bene Gesserit the metaphysical ability
1: to see beyond. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find?
2: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.